0: Okay. So welcome to this uh, session on the challenges of the digital uh, age and how well the EU economy can uh, thrive on this. Um, this is going to be a very uh, interesting uh, panel. We have very great uh, panel members uh, here, uh, both from the policy side as well as on the company <laughs> side, uh, having to deal with uh, di- the challenges of digital technology. So uh, I would like to start as soon as possible with this uh, panel discussion here. I would just want to take a few minutes uh, just to 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 sketch a bit the environment and what we know from uh, the academic analysis on where we stand uh, as a European economy uh, within this digital uh, age. So first of all, these digital technologies uh, are still very much evolving here. Uh, we haven't seen the end of it yet. Uh, if you look at the statistics on the adoption of robotics, it's uh, recent in recent years even accelerating uh, here. Also, if you take a look at uh, big data and artificial intelligence, uh, that's still in a very early stage of of takeoff uh, here and still more to come also with the involvement of quantum technology. So digital technology revolution in itself is still very much uh, evolving uh, here. And that's of course why we are discussing this very uh, intensively here, uh, particularly also because there are very many different views on what this would mean for the EU economy. On the one hand, there is a very optimistic view, is that these digital technologies will really be a very important boost for economic growth, for productivity here, yet if we look at the data so far, we don't see really big boosts in productivity uh, yet uh, here. So that's already one question which we might be addressing in the panel here is uh, when and where will we actually see these productivity uh, effects from digitalization? Uh, There are also the more pessimistic views which say that this productivity uh, comes actually with a lot of destruction here, that there will be a lot of losers here, both in terms of workers, but also in terms of firms uh, here, and that it will actually lead to a lot of polarization uh, here, the digital have and have nots uh, here, and how that uh, will also have an effect on uh, the sustainability uh, of our economic uh, growth uh, here. Um, Particularly on this polarization, we also have a lot of evidence uh, that shows uh, on the one one hand, indeed, this polarization, uh, that we do see some firms really pushing ahead, both in terms of digital technologies and productivity growth from that. Uh, So those are really the new leading firms. Um, And on the other hand, you have those that are staying behind here. And the low productivity growth that we see is basically from a lot of companies not adopting digital technologies and not having uh, those kind of productivity growth. So this overall slow productivity growth reflects this divergence here that there are a few companies forging ahead in productivity growth and and others uh, not. We do, as a corollary, also see increasing concentration uh, in a lot of industries here. has been documented very extensively in the US economy, but also uh, more recently for the EU uh, economies here. And as this holds across all sectors, but particularly, again, in digital sectors and digitally using uh, sectors uh, here, where you see this increase in concentration, uh, concentration on these uh, leading firms uh, here. We also have the evidence on increasing markups uh, here. Uh, and th- this is, again, in many sectors that we see these increasing markups here. But these increasing markups are again particularly for, it's not the whole, along the whole distribution function of firms here, but it's again these leading firms which are particularly able to also generate higher uh, markups uh, here. So we have this concentration in leading firms uh, here increasingly, uh, winner take all. Very often these winners are the ones that are able to use these uh, digital uh, technologies for productivity and hence, but also rising uh, markups uh, here. Um, so that's basically, if you then look at who are these leading firms, there is also this growing uh, concern of where is Europe uh, in the leading um, among these leading firms uh, here. We know that if we look at who are these leading uh, digital technology firms uh, here, many of them are, most of them are always the US and, and China here, so there are very few uh, European names among these uh, these leading firms uh, here so definitely in terms of uh, research in pushing the frontier of the digital technologies European firms have a hard time to be at that frontier and to be among these uh, winners uh, here but there is also the big important uh, dimension of adoption of technologies in other sectors where Europe might have very strong leading firms here if you think of the the, the automobile industry, in many uh, in in pharma, uh, so lots of sectors where European leading firms are there. The question then is really to the extent to which they are able to adopt these technologies to be um, using that for pushing their frontier within their sector here and and become uh, winners in their sectors uh, here. Um, On the adoption of of technologies and how good European firms are there, I think that's a really very important uh, issue to to discuss here. Very happy that we have European uh, firms um, on this to talk. Um, The evidence is a bit mixed, uh, so there's a lot of concern that also Europe is falling behind in terms of adoption of of digital technologies here. But actually, some more recent research that we also did uh, with the help of uh, survey evidence from the EIB, we actually see that Europe is not necessarily worse than American firms in terms of adopting new technologies, uh, digital technologies. Uh, here. Um, we, we certainly, if you correct for sectors and size and age composition, here Europe is not um, more behind than American firms. Uh, here we do see in the evidence indeed this polarization that you have some firms really forging ahead uh, with heavily investing in the latest technologies and keep on investing in this. Um, Those are usually the big leading firms in their sector. And then the firms that are really falling behind are not adopting digital technologies and also have no interest in in adopting in the future here. And those uh, falling behind companies are usually the old SME companies uh, here. So the the problem really is, do you have too many of these old SMEs in certain sectors which have no incentive um, to invest in these new digital technologies here? And if Europe is falling behind on digital, it's more a sectoral size age composition rather than... um, uh, EU versus US uh, divide uh, here. So then, of course, the important question is what are the barriers that these firms and particularly these old SMEs face? Why are they not adopting these new digital technologies here? Um, also there, the, the evidence shows that, first of all, a very important barrier for firms to adopt digital technologies is always access to skills. Uh, and that holds for all firms, even for the forging ahead one. So that's the major barrier that they actually report, and we might come back uh, on that, the extent to which the skills is really the barrier to, to be dealing with also in terms of policy um, but then also if we if we look at barriers that are particular for these older SMEs to adopt digital technologies uh, here there it's particularly access to finance that stands out compared to to the other firms uh, here so again that's something we might be discussing um, the extent to which access to finance is really a a barrier for these old SMEs to adopt uh, technologies uh, here. And then finally, one other uh, piece of evidence um, that came out of this analysis too, is uh, the importance of competition as an incentive to invest in, in digital technologies. And what we do see in the comparison between the EU and the US is that for those companies forging ahead in the US, their major motivation of doing that is because of the competition that they are facing in their markets here and maybe that's again another policy instrument we might be wanting talking about is the extent to which a vibrant single market where there is enough competition, so there is a link between the single market and the competition policy here, as providing the right incentive for firms as an incentive to invest uh, in digital technologies here. So we see we have a full uh, agenda, a lot of stuff uh, to discuss here, not sure we will be able to uh, solve all these different uh, issues here, but nevertheless the panel that we have here is able to address uh, each of them uh, here. I would like to start uh, to uh, give the floor uh, to our first speaker, which is Claire Bury. Uh, she's um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I have to take my. B- uh, she's the deputy director general of DG Connect here. Um, not so long uh, taking up this position. She also has a good history in terms of uh, dealing with internal market uh, issues here before. So I think she's very well placed to really address the various dimensions of EU policy to uh, address uh, these uh, challenges of how the EU economy can take advantage of digital technologies here.
1: So, Claire yours. Thank you very much, Reinhold. Um, Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you, uh, with Joachim, and with Victoria, but uh, more than that, all of you who are in the audience today. to talk about digital in these surroundings is I find a little bit challenging <laughs> I mean it 's so much um, uh, let 's say old fashioned uh, but uh, nonetheless we 'll do our best I think to uh, spark the debate and, and get it going and on my way up the stairs as well, I saw there were a lot of people going down to the sessions on green uh, and on trade, and of course, those are very sexy subjects, but I see that all of you in this room have understood where the real action is. Uh-huh. All of you gentlemen and few ladies, um, and it's nice to be with two ladies on the panel, um, as opposed to the usual being the token woman on the panel. Um, but it's really it's great to be here this morning. You started, uh, Reinald, by saying, and this is a very uh, a dichotomy with which we're quite familiar, I think, or most of you are if you're interested in digital, which is, uh, are we tech optimists or are we tech pessimists? So who's an optimist? Ah, okay, great. Pessimist? Okay, you're right as well. I'm a realist, I like to say. I'm a realist, no? Um, Three years, three and a half years now, um, I think um, I joke with Roberto Viola that every week in DG Connect is like a month in every other DG of the commission. Um, And I had seen a bit of action on financial services before, but things do move fast uh, in DG Connect. And I think that leads me into my first point, which is, you talked about productivity, you talked about how do we measure what's going on, and I think the point that I want to bring through in what I'm going to say today is that digital is different. It is different than anything we have seen before. It's different from the industrial revolution. This digital revolution really means that we have to look at things out of the box. We have to look at it with new paradigms, so analyzing productivity, of course, Economists um, uh, have made their lives out of that and need to continue to do it because it's important. You know, Is mankind producing more than it did in the past and producing more value than it did in the past? However, if we only look at it through the metrics of existing economics, I think we will miss the point. Why will we miss the point? There are three things, I think, that make digital different. The first, and you mentioned that as well, Um, Reinaldin, what you started with, which is that innovation now is not incremental, it is disruptive. Now a lot of people talk about disruptive innovation, but I think we should unpick a little bit what we mean by that here. And I think what's different in digital is the speed and the scale. I don't know who it was in the tech uh, sector that said, um, most of them have probably said no, that what we have to do is move fast and break things. And that's the way that it is working. It's not about making a small investment if you want to upgrade your company. It's about making a big investment and it's about taking a big risk. And if you don't do it, you will be a dinosaur. The zombie SMEs that we are, we don't want in our European economy. Of course we want SMEs, we need SMEs. It's a huge part of our economy in Europe, but they have to be vibrant SMEs. They have to be startups, but they also have to be scale-ups. And that's where I think we need to try and make the difference. In 2006, just to complement the figures that you gave, Ronald, um, in 2006, there was one tech company in the world's largest firms. Today, 2019, seven of the top five. Seven out of the top 10 are digital. There is only three companies that are not digital. And that is Berkshire Hathaway, bless him, he's still there, no, he's still going, the Sage of Omaha. Johnson & Johnson, big pharma company, huge pharma company, and J.P. Morgan Chase. So those of you in the financial sector, were it's still in Europe chasing after the big Americans. Um, but things have been changed. And out of those top ten, of course, two of them are Chinese, Tencent and Alibaba. Secondly, oh, so I think this shows we need to go beyond business as usual. You know, we have to look at everything in a different way. We have to change the paradigm. Secondly, it's not about R&D and patents anymore, I would contest. I don't know, you may have a view on that in terms of whether they are still important, the extent to which they're still important, but what's important is knowledge-based capital. This is the key ingredient, it's the intangible assets, and of course, what is the key resource? What's the one resource that you should all be looking at, seeing how you can conserve it, see how you can create it, Victoria? People, yeah people but what else is there something else that all those big tech companies have got thank you data no if we don't get the piece right on data we are not uh, going to get that it's key for customization and we know that the network effects are such that the more data you have the more you will have the more you will be able to create the more you will be able to customize the bigger you will be able to grow the third thing that makes digital difference is that it is no longer about the size of the workforce and the assets. It's not about how many people you employ. It's not about how many buildings you have. It's about how many users you have. It's about the scale of your network and it's about the consumer pools that you have. So this in a way turns the business paradigm on its head. Companies who can capture the highest number of users are the ones who are going to win. And those big companies who are in the top 10 know that, and they are exploiting that, are max. Network effects are estimated to be responsible for 70% of the value created by tech companies since the birth of the internet in 1994. So in Europe, what is the first lesson we have learned? It is that fragmented markets, regional divisions, and language barriers stop our companies being able to have network effects. And that's why we spent the last five years working on the digital single market. 30 legislative measures, massive changes in the telecom framework, which we hope will open up the markets for our companies. But is that enough? Have we completed? Martin Selmayer said before he moved to Vienna, we have completed the single market. I was, wow, finally. <laughs> The 25 years I got there, we completed the single market. Well, we haven't, we haven't, of course, no, because it's never going to be finished. When I was a kid, uh, there was that image of the Eiffel Tower being painted, and the thing that really struck me was they paint it, they get to the top, and then they have to start all, all over again at the bottom, and it's a bit like that, no? We, we can't stop. We have, to keep, we have to keep going. We put things in place, but it's not enough, and we have to keep moving because the competition uh, is moving as well. I wanted to give just one example, and then I'm going to move to what I think could be the three things that we could do to try and um, meet these challenges. And that is one that you were talking about, Joachim, as we stepped on the platform. And Maybe you can give your experience on that. But it's this very often cited example about how the Commission missed a trick in mergers. And that was when Facebook took over WhatsApp. And you had the story before what I'm going to talk about huh? Um, but in 2004, WhatsApp paid $17.5 billion for WhatsApp. Why did they do it? Because it provided the same functionality as Facebook Messenger. Who used Facebook Messenger? Anybody in this room? You did? Okay. Oh, a few. A few. Who's using WhatsApp now? Everybody, no? If you're not on WhatsApp, you're not there, really. So at that point in time, that company was not making a profit, was was not doing well at all, and everybody thought that Facebook was paying through the nose for it. Now it's tripled in value, and it is half, probably even more than half as we speak, of the instant messaging that takes place across the globe. Regulators will always be a bit behind the curve. We should be but we shouldn't be too far behind the curve. And I think we have to be very careful of that in Europe. So what can we do? What are the three things that we should now focus on? First of all, we need to respond to this question of scale and speed. And we need to respond to it in terms of the data, so making sure that our companies have access to data as well. I'm sure you're going to talk about that, Victoria, because I know that the financial services industry feels hard done to through yeah. the PSD too. Right? Um, but the other thing is we have got to invest in the key technologies and we've got to do it now and we've got to do it at scale. So what are the key technologies? Artificial intelligence, high-performance computing, cyber, digital skills is not a technology, but unless... Our citizens can use basic skills but also we have people who can do AI who can do the high-performance computing in Europe and don't go to the West Coast uh, to set up their business or continue their studies then we won't be in the gate secondly we have to mainstream digital when I took over this job in Connect three years ago it was already I was thinking we're a little bit behind the curve because we were talking about digital still as separate In fact, it turned out to be a good political choice because we had a big head of steam behind the digital single market, which didn't exist anymore for the single marketer. But nonetheless, now we have got to mainstream digital across all our industries that are so important. So that starts with the services industry, where I think in financial services, the banks are waking up, you're on on the case. Um, But there's plenty of other service industries where it's not the case, and we are certainly as well behind, even though robotics we have more of it. We're still behind in manufacturing, but we're also behind in the health industry. Mobility, of course, is key, and energy. I mean, these are industries where we have to mainstream digital now to make a success of it. I'm not saying telcos, because you're going to talk about that, but for me, telcos is connectivity. I don't make a distinction between the two. I mean, the telcos are already digital. And the last thing, not by no means least, are the societal challenges. What makes us different in Europe is that we have, and there we feel it, I think, in this room, now, we have this history, uh, we have a sense of tradition, we also have a sense of values. And your average European citizen has to be convinced that these technologies are good for society. And that is not that straightforward. If you read any of the reports of the European Parliament about what they think about artificial intelligence, you will see that there are a lot of people who are out there who are scared of AI, who don't understand AI, and don't know what it will mean for society. They don't know what it's going to mean for their jobs. Now, even the experts don't necessarily know exactly what's going to mean for jobs, but we do know it's going to transform the workplace. So what we have to do is explain artificial intelligence, and we have started a process in the commission where we brought in a group of experts, but we're also working across NGOs, other parts of civil society, with everyone, so that there is a better understanding of what it means, and what are the key principles that we want in this? We want accountability, we want transparency, and I think, but you'll tell me whether I'm right on that, we need humans in the loop. A lot of people talk about black boxes in AI, But we need to understand that you might not know exactly what's happening in the black box, but somebody does and somebody can explain it. I often think, because I have a legal background about what's going to happen when cases come to court, and judges will be asked when a connected car causes an accident, who is responsible at that point and how they will apportion uh, the responsibility. But it's not really good enough just to say there was a black box in all this. So, we have to be able to have trustworthy AI, which means businesses understand it, you know what you're doing when you use it, and what steps you should be going through to check that you don't have inherent discrimination in your AI, you don't have biases, you don't have AI that's going to cause safety risks. This trustworthy AI is absolutely crucial. I haven't mentioned blockchain, but of course that's another of the technologies that's coming on stream that we have to see. I mean, we have done various things in Europe and I think there we are a bit ahead of the curve in terms of how we can use blockchain and how we can roll it out. So I think data access, investment in key technologies, mainstreaming digital and societal challenges are the three things that we need to focus on now going forward. Now as I said to you at the beginning, these are at this point my personal thoughts because All of you who uh, are Brussels watchers, and I know you are, otherwise you wouldn't be here, know that we are betwixt and between on our commissioners. Um, We have a president-elect. What I know is that she, in her speech to the parliament, recognized uh, the importance of digital. She said, Europe has to strive for more in grasping the opportunities from the digital age. She has seven young children, I think, who remind her of the benefits and how connected they want to be. Um, But she also said we have to do so within safe and ethical boundaries. So we have to work together on that in terms of what those safe and ethical boundaries are. And, of course, I'm waiting for my new commissioner, my new vice president, whatever it will be, uh, to say exactly how we will go about that. So I'm sharing my personal thoughts with you today. Um, but safe in the knowledge uh, that Ursula von der Leyen firmly believes in digital and knows that Europe's future is in the centre of what goes on on digital.
0: Thank you very much, Claire. I think you really pointed to very important challenges here. And I think the major one is really how to mainstream the whole digital technology revolution also within policy making here. It's clearly the issue of, of uh, emphasizing how important scale is for companies uh, here, scale and incumbency here, this winner take all, not just only in digital sectors, but also in the sectors using this digital technology here. And that means then also having the policy instruments to make sure that this scaling up uh, is is possible here financing uh, scale up here but also the single market uh, here and not just only the digital single market but the single market in uh, also business services uh, manufacturing sectors here still un- unaccomplished here so that's also a big part of mainstreaming uh, policy making and then competition policy also as, as you mentioned here uh, how uh, do we have to uh, square, on the one hand, our attitude towards mergers and acquisitions to allow that scaling up here, while at the same time also allow- allowing for enough constant stability here? Now, the two sides that we have here from the business sector are all representing the bigger companies here, uh, so it's very interesting to see their perspective uh, here. I'd like to start with um, with Victoria, who will be representing uh, here the position of the financial sector here with Santander. On the one hand, how do Digital is challenging their business model here, but also how, as a uh, financing sector, they can contribute to uh, other sectors taking up that digital challenge uh, here. Thanks so, so much, Victoria. Thanks so service. much
2: for having me here. Uh, look, I want to start, and you have mentioned that, but access to finance, at the end of the day, is critical for the growth of Europe. And if you take the banks, the banks have an essential role to play there. And digital is one of the tools we have to boost that. Uh, You both mentioned how to boost productivity, so how to use digital, be AI, be robotics, anything to boost productivity, as well as scale and speed. But to be honest, to be able to make it happen, there have to be some policy actions taking place. And and let me start by, we need to have fair competition, meaning as, well, (laughs) I'm saying as representing uh, myself, right? But banks, are providing services today that other, like tech companies, be U.S. or the Chinese, are also offering under different rules of the game, right? And look, I'm not an expert in banking regulation. I joined the bank a couple of years ago for, with a very different background. I used to live in the U.S., uh, working with tech companies, etc. But just like a reflection of what we see when we try to launch new products and those are solutions to put in the hands of our customers be financing for SMEs or individuals or any other type of solutions and let me give you a couple of examples right Uh, it takes us three times longer to launch a solution Let's let's say a credit product or a tool for SMEs to better manage their cash flows and therefore have access to financing, and why it takes us three times longer than a tech company or any other player operating in the same space. And the driver is not that we have legacy, which we do, but it's like the regulatory burdens we have to go through be how we assess vendors, all the steps that we need to take to go to a regulatory sandbox, et cetera, all of those add time. Another example is on the skills, or access to talent, right? Uh, we are building new businesses. There is this one example, it's called ASTO, which is meant to help SMEs, going back to how we can foster the economy in Europe, right? Uh, we cannot attract talent, why? Because the tech talent that you may need to build this kind of products don't want to be subject, well, we need regulatory approvals for certain roles, we have we are ca- we have caps in terms of how we can pay, etc. And at the end of the day, it limits how fast you can innovate and how fast you can actually take uh, those products to the hands of the customers. I, I want to leave clear that for anything that's deposit-related, okay, as banks, we have the responsibility, we have the trust, the money of our customers, and that should be highly regulated and. Like the highest oversight, but there are other activities where there is no deposit gathering that have to have that have to play with the same rules as other uh companies that are operating in the same space. That's more on the fair competition uh we mentioned data right and and that comes back also how data is being used and what we can do again. I start with this whole thing idea of like access to financing, right, for SMEs. What happens with SMEs? We don't have, they don't have the same level of sophistication in terms of public data. So, as banks, when we do credit assessments, we don't have the same type of data that others may do. We start using data that's uh, non-traditional tra- non, uh, means of data. And what we saw, if I take the example of our bank in Brazil, is that when we use data from TripAdvisor for certain SMEs, we can improve our scoring models by 5 to 10%. And that's very relevant, because it gives you the ability of lending 30% more than if you don't have that credit scoring accurate. What happens is that there are companies uh, like let's say, tech companies that have more access to data. Not, and, and there is no data sharing policy today other than PSD2, right? But they can use the data. And one of the things that, ba- actually, at the end of the day, a customer, a user would benefit is to have those choices and the ability to have portability of that data. So be a bank or any institution could use that non-traditional data to better offer those services and why i'm saying data portability is important the user should be in control which is not the case today for everything and that should come with also safety and some data policies so that's more on the data side so again on it's critical because if you take a business like payments right why do some of these companies are entering the payments business, it's mostly around the data and how you can use the data to offer other services, right? So there should be some policy around how this data is shared. So it's not just one way, but it has to be open to all and let users be in control. So that's uh, another theme also building into this whole idea of fair competition, right? Which, again, it goes into the benefit of the economy. And then the last one is more around access to infrastructures. And when we talk about infrastructures, here you can't paint any app ra- ranking, app stores, your search engines. Today, most of the products, be from financial services or any, any other industries today, they get distributed or picked through those infrastructures. Today, those infrastructures are in very few hands. They're highly controlled. And there is not always fair access. Uh, how are certain products being ranked, etc. So there has to be also on that front some sort of rules and make sure that there is fair access. And again, I go back at the end of the day, it may sound like making a pitch for the bank, but at the end of the day, it's like making helping customers make informed choices in a safe and fair way. So I know I was it, it may have sound like These are all the things we need as a bank, but I think it comes back to if banks have an important role to play in the economy and in providing financing and to be able to innovate in that space, we need to make sure that we have, we all innovators operate under the same rules. And again, we should have same activity, same rules, if you take a bank, just by the fact that it has a part of the bank that gathers deposit, which is a very it's a, it's a very important part for society and and actually you keep the dreams of of people right by keeping their deposit safe. We need to make sure that activities that are outside deposits, be like uh, value add services to SMEs, individuals, can be regulated in a different way as others are being regulated today. And again, applies to be like how software is treated with capital consumption. It applies of how data is being consumed and access to data, et cetera. So I think that having like same rules of the game for specific activities is very important to foster innovation and therefore improve like what you deliver to customers. I can keep giving examples, but I th- uh, and maybe a last one so it makes it clear, when it takes you three years to launch a solution, okay, it has an impact on the pockets of clients too, right? We started three years ago to develop a solution for, for cross-border payments that was blockchain based. It's called OnepayfX. Normally, and if you take a uh, company like Transferwise, it may have taken them one year to develop. The fact that it took us three years meant that our funding, like the costs, the fees that we we'll have to charge clients, are much higher because we don't have, like, we have to support an infrastructure. Now that we managed to deploy this solution, from having to charge, I believe it was around 60 pounds per of a fee, we can go down to zero so this kind of thing, like not being able to launch fast enough and having to follow like like very different processes and having a very different umbrella of reg- like of a regulatory environment has an impact on consumers too. so so that's
0: Thank you very much. I think you very nicely identified the challenge of being in the business sector of banking uh, here. So it's no longer about the size of your deposits and, and credits here. Your biggest value is really the, the wealth of data that you have on your customers in terms of what financial services they actually are consuming and what they would be needing here. And then the question is to what sex, to which extent is the whole regulatory system allowing you to use those data uh, to offer better services uh, here. So so uh, I wanted to know to which extent the regulatory barrier is more in terms of when you have these data, what can you do in terms of which services you can supply, or is it more in terms of the extent to which you can use these data that you have here uh, because of privacy considerations or whatever to be able to offer services? So where is the biggest? barrier for you from a regulatory perspective, maybe first sir yeah, and then can, you can, I can add answer. Something, can <laughs> I add something
1: else as well? Because yeah. listening to you, Victoria was also wondering, I mean, I had the same kind of questions as Reinhold, but I was wondering, is there also a problem in the application of the rules? I mean, is it not just about the rules themselves? I mean, indeed, it's good to know which are the ones which you find to be the biggest obstacle and the most problematic. Is there a problem in the application? of the rules as well. I mean, I think, you know, it's a good moment now to unpick what the problems are and, and better understand them. Huh? I mean most of the rules are not there. Okay, I mean some become a bit outdated, no, but most of them are not there just for the sake of having rules. Yeah. They've got a purpose behind them. But I think, you know, is it the application and which of the rules are the most yeah, problematic? So let me
2: first take this question <laughs> and then I'll move to the data one, right? So uh, in terms of what the rules I, I agree that rules were created for a reason at a certain point in time, right? I don't think it's application, but it's the rule itself. If you take like, the example of a bank, right? And we have a deposit business, and we have a payments business that it's growing. What we cannot, well, at, at least it's my point of view and how it impacts the customer too, right? Is that today, because we have a deposit business too, we as we have the same like prudential, like the prudential regulation on everything else. Meaning, I'll just give you an example, like uh, on payments, right? So if we were to compare us doing cross-border payments with a separate business to someone who doesn't have uh, a deposit taking uh, arm, right? Um, A a tech company would rely on our KYC, right? We We build our KYC, it's very important to us, but a third party would do when it comes to investment in software, right, which is an important one, all we invest in that new technology, consumes capital for us, okay? Which means that that's money that we cannot lend to other customers to to thrive, to grow, right? So that's another example. Uh, Data protection, we are under two, the oversight of just like uh, consumer protection. So if you go almost like one by one, by the fact that we are deposit gatherers, and, and just to be very clear, that's something we are like super supportive that there has to be regulation, high oversight, etc. But by the fact that we have these two businesses, we are like we have the rules, and it's not just the application, but it's the rules that apply to the deposit side too, which others don't. To your question on data, uh, we do use data. We don't share data. Like our data doesn't leak <laughs> to the bank. That's a very important thing. It's the access to non-traditional sources of data to better, I- to improve our models. That's, that's where we think there should be uh, some sort of policy that allows users to have portability of that data. I, get, like, just, I, I mentioned the example of Brazil, but there is a study that says like, uh, they did a study, when you add 10 more variables to a credit model, it can improve between five to 10%. For us, that means like placing 10 to 30% more on lending because you have better credit scoring. And it's not just that. Imagine you are an SME. When you don't have enough data, the credit scoring is not accurate. It's very high. Like the, the cost of funding, it's much higher. So being able to tap into that data and having users be able to use that data, and again, it's raw data. It's not manipulated data. That gives a benefit for both sides. Yep.
0: So it's data access. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to turn to uh, our last speaker in the panel here, which is uh, Joachim Reiter. You also have actually two faces uh, here that you can um, that you can display, because being uh, at Vodafone, you of course are a very important player to generate the digital infrastructure for others uh, to be using uh, here. But at the same time, you also, as a telecom uh, company and in the telecom sector, are also facing these challenges of how to use digital technologies here in order to uh, to get commercial value out of digital technologies and productivity growth uh, here. So you can use whatever hat you want (laughs) to uh, discuss these
3: challenges. And and the third is, of course, I contribute to the gender equality of this panel, which is lovely, (laughs) Uh, for once. (laughs) Uh, I want to start with three overarching points and I will make uh, a plea for three actions. So my three overarching points is, I think there is a confusion, digital is super sexy, data is super sexy, but there is a confusion of the waves of the transformation we're going through. And we tend to look a lot when we try to understand the future in the rear uh, window, and in our assessment that's just not going to work. What A lot of the things that we have discussed, including now, is around the um, internet economy or the mobile internet economy. What makes Vodafone super excited about the next phase of digital that we have just entered is the manner in which that economy is converging with the real economy. If you think about it, um, take M-Pesa, the mobile money solution that Vodafone launched for financial inclusion in Kenya. 50% of GDP runs on it, Uh, 2% of all households have been lifted out of absolute poverty. We can have a long discussion on productivity or not, It generated a GDP boost, it empowered women, it provided access to information, access to services that were never available before. And I think a lot of the things that happen in the internet economy as we have experienced it, it has had an incredible convenience effect on all of us. I mean, me coming to Brussels today, so I, I may buy my suit for an Amazon. I wouldn't advise it, but you could. Uh, I end up booking w- uh, my hotel through booking.com. So everything we do has been co- become facilitated. Now, it's a different thing on whether it has changed production methods, which is the thing that drives productivity growth. But that, in my view, is exactly where we're at the cusp at. Because through AI, Internet of Things, and 5G, and 5G, by the way, is not a connectivity system for people to people communication this is not about having better um, uh, uh, better streaming of cat videos on youtube this is about in factory solutions revolutionizing agriculture revolutionizing energy system revolutionizing mobility revolutionizing healthcare and it's going to be highly disruptive but it's but it is in the application and the convergence with the real economy that you now uh, uh, that we're now entering into and that will be painful and very difficult to handle the second thing, which uh, touches upon uh, um, uh, our host and uh, Rainer Hilde's initial point, I disagree when we talk about Europe as a laggard or not. On the internet economy, for sure, we're a laggard. And you can start with that list of the 10 largest companies. It's also from the point of view that the cutting-edge research and the cutting-edge products and applications being launched are mostly, most of them, not being done in Europe. It's being done in the United States and increasingly now in China. And that's just a fact of life. Why I'm less worried is that once the internet economy meets the real economy, i.e. the real digital transformation that we're now entering, Europe has one advantage. From a macroeconomic point of view, we have driven up the labor cost through our welfare state. The unintended consequence of that is that we have higher capital intensity in automation as a starting point in our manufacturing industry. So my view is Europe has a chance in the next phase of digital transformation to catch up provided it cl- plays its cards right. But let's not kid ourselves. This is not a benign race. I had the pleasure of being in the White House in April, the day before Trump launched his 5G uh, Moonshot, which is really like a space race in, in, the, in the American psyche. And, and, and if you know anything about space race, there is the whole thing, principles around free market, let's not have government subsidies, and stuff, that disappears. So, he launched 20 billion of subsidies uh, for the rural broadband, including the rip and replace of Chinese equipment in rural networks in, in, uh, in the United States. Um, but what was very clear to me from that conversation is that there was an underlying element of a zero sum game. There was an underlying element that it was necessary to win this race. And I don't think that penny has dropped among European policymakers that actually. Europe will need to step up to retain its competitiveness that has been incredibly effective, particularly in its manufacturing industry as we move forward. Now, as I said, the good news is that we actually have a pretty good starting point. Our weakness has been in the ICT industry, not in our manufacturing industry. But when you merge ICT with manufacturing, will you get the poor average, or will you have the capital uh, intensity of the manufacturing industry driving the change and driving the digital transformation in Europe? The third thing is that we seem to agree broadly on objectives here, which is mainstream stop tr- talking about it as a separate sector, it's about something to be integrated in the entire economy, in actual fact all walks of life. Your homes will be connected, uh, as you travel to work you will change the means of transportation, the way that you manage your utilities will be fundamentally changed, that they will do things that the way we produce telecom services or anything else we produce in our economy will be fundamentally changed. So it's a full mainstreaming. Speed and scale, absolutely agree. Investment, which was referred to, I w- thought it was interesting the Commission didn't refer to the investment into the infrastructure that actually all the data builds upon, but I will touch upon that. Economic sustainability access. Uh, very importantly raised by our colleague from the financial services industry, a non sectoral approach. Because convergence of sectors means that a sectoral approach will fundamentally always fail you will always have new services coming up even the cracks between regulatory system exploiting an arbitrage, a regulatory arbitrage and that's to some extent what we have seen in the internet economy and that's one of the reasons why European companies have not been as successful in launching products because they've been sectorally regulated and have not been able to exploit if you want the regulatory arbitrage that non-European actors have been able to do and that change, that needs to then to have a change in our regulatory approach, moving away from too detailed. It's correct that regulators are often behind the curve, but it's not acceptable. The ultimate effect is that consumers are not protected. That should not be an acceptable outcome in Europe, and therefore, we need to move away from a system where you regulate a sector towards a system where you regulate a service. I'm a trade negotiator by training, 20 years doing trade negotiations. I found it fascinating entering the telco world, and we regulate a sector and not a service. In, in trade, including in WTO rules, like service is the core concept, just as like goods. Why is that, that not applied in Europe? We're fighting in the code whether or not um, some of the new messaging services or the way you make phone calls actually fall under communication services. Why do we have to have a legislation that fixes that? Of course they are. If it's a like service, it's a like service. If you would have had that conversation in WTO, it wouldn't have been a problem yet we spent two years fighting it out in Brussels because we have approached it from a sectoral point of view as opposed from intellectually from a service point of view. Similarly I think we have to change the way that we approach uh, the role of regulator versus private sector because technology is so fast-moving because it's so disruptive and because you have um, a, pu- a collective action problem in managing some of the vulnerabilities that come or the challenges that come we need to have much more of a partnership model between regulators, governments, and the private sector. And finally, uh, I think we mentioned all of us trust, safety, and empowerment as the key ingredients to uphold European values in a transformation that otherwise could be quite uh, painful at an individual level or at a societal level. Now, what does that mean f- in my view of what the commission should do? And Claire, um, you know, you I don't know, you have I know you don't have a new boss, but directionally did you connect and the Vodafone has always been quite aligned, maybe not on the level of ambition. So here's my plea on the higher level of ambition going forward. First is infrastructure. The whole talk about digital, digital transformation data disregards that you can't write. Drive digital Ferraris on copper gravel roads and that's what we're still doing in Europe now China is working on at this summer it had around 250,000 5G base stations up and running the United States will have 90 cities covered by 5G at the end of this year and the European Commission yesterday in this press uh, statement by one of the persons reporting to Claire said Europe is not behind in 5G we're far behind more importantly we're using the spectrum auctions to extract resources out of industry so that money is not available to deploy the infrastructure and make sure that we reaches all corners of the society to make sure that digital transformation can have happen everywhere as opposed to increasing the rural urban divide that already exists in our society. This is a societal choice, this is a political choice. If we are serious about covering the investment gap in Europe we need a reset of what is required to make sure that those investments happen. Commission tried very hard in the code on Spectrum, it failed because member states said no, yeah well we made some progress in theory um, because in practice what we have seen since then is that the uh, 5G with its hype has now reawoken the behaviors that we saw on 3G which is my god this is so sexy I'm gonna tax it to death, so that's conversation we will have to have on whether that is a good policy practice, what are the best policy practices for ensuring that all the money existing in the private sector is not extracted at the point of selling the spectrum so that there is no money left for deploying the infrastructure. Secondly, we actually don't have a good system to deploy the infrastructure as such in Europe. The Commission hopefully will be reviewing um, the BCRD, so this is basically the cost reduction directive. Uh, The reality is that each member states pretty much do what they want. It can take anywhere from 35 days to two years to get a planning uh, permit agreed to roll out infrastructure. We still have a complete uh, fragmentation on how we see uh, the scientific evidence around EMF. So Vodafone, we did a digital deployment index. How much actually does it cost to roll out infrastructure? How do member states compare against each other? And I can tell you, there's absolutely no single market whatsoever when it comes to deploying infrastructure. Actually, in many countries, it's not even a country from the point of view of deploying infrastructure. It can be super expensive. And that's the under vegetation type of problems that drive up the cost in Europe to deploy infrastructure. The end result is that the massive investment gap that we're already facing in Europe, that the commission has estimated to be above 100 billion euros, we're not even gonna effectively deploy, uh, use that money to cover the gap because of the various measures that exist to drive up the cost of infrastructure rollout so we need to reset on the infrastructure rollout conditions and we need to reset on the spectrum auctions systems and the licensing procedures the second big pillar that we're going to have to work on is what is our plan for made in Europe in digital so Claire correctly referred to the fact that we need to invest in the new technologies and I genuinely believe that we need to find a European way of investing in it. In a European way, I mean both from an economic and a societal point of view. So the European Parliament and Commission are talking about human-centric AI. It's a great example of it. But where Europe often gets it wrong is that we are, in the end, ending up with an innovation-by-permission system, not an innovation-first system. So this is much what the financial services colleague referred to in that when you want to launch a service you spend three years trying to navigate exactly what are the rules the micromanagement of how you run a company as opposed to the principled approach that put a lot of onus on the company to behave responsibly that has to change in my view so that's an innovation first where you actually principally guide the market to certain outcomes which are societally beneficial as opposed to micromanage everything and I think that's also the only way to keep pace with the launch of new products and new ways of working that of course comes with digital. In this bucket of course we're going to have to address uh, questions around digital gatekeeping, the application of competition law but from Vodafone's point of view competition law will always struggle to keep pace with uh, uh, the network effects that exist in the digital economy. So we're going to have to think about what are the ex-ante regulatory tools that are available and by the way, I exist in a sector that uses that amply. So are there elements of that learning that should be applied? Finally, on the point with respect to the made in Europe, we should not fool ourselves to assume that in digital we have a single market. So I I was fascinated that you made the point that Selmayr had said we have a single market. So we don't have a single market for telco, it's a completely national market to start with. But more importantly, the problem with connectivity being plugged into products which is basically Internet of Things, is that it's the least integrated element of regulation that will determine the outcome. So when I connect a car, which Vodafone does a lot, in a German car, with a SIM card into it, it takes seven to nine months today to get it approved in, in Italy. I cannot sell the product for seven to nine months because it is connected. Imagine a scenario where everything gets connected, your refrigerator, your toaster. Will we have an internal market free movement of goods at that point? Because actually the telco regulator of every country will have to look at numbering, emergency calling, and a number of other what I call legacy telco rules that undermine the free flow of goods within the European Union. So there's a big homework to be done on unleashing the power of IoT within the European Union preserving and creating a proper internal market for connected stuff. Currently, if we continue on the current track we're on, unfortunately, we may very well see the gradual dismantlement of the the internal market for smart stuff, while the dumb stuff can still flow freely. The final thing I wanted to say is the question around uh, trust. I think this is the ne- absolutely necessary ingredient into a future uh, digital vision of the European Union. The challenge I have is um, Europe seems to be satisfied that it has established GDPR and that's the only model out there. The GDPR was an incredible achievement. One of my first assignments in Vodafone was to sit in front of a commissioner and the FCC chairman. And the FCC chairman was bashing a GDPR and then he turned to Vodafone and says, isn't GDPR really constraining innovation? I said, well actually it's expensive, it's complicated, but it's the only way that I know that people can trust the digital transformation that we're embarking on, and that's more important. So we're going to have to look at what are the other things that are required, building on the success that we had at GDPR, which was the right thing to do. But what are the other things that people really worry about to make sure that digital transformation is a process that both empowers people and it cares for them. I address the vulnerabilities that come with it, and of course, on consumer protection, there we have to move away from the siloed approach to consumer protection to having consumer protection that covers the entire ecosystem, which we don't have today. Fragmentation, both between sectors and between member states, will have to stop; otherwise, there will always be regulatory cracks that where consumers are exposed. The resilience. And the vulnerabilities of digital transformation and digital, and where everything and everyone is connected, we have to take far more seriously in Europe. We have underinvested for a very long time in our cyber capabilities. And unfortunately, there is a collective action problem here. Vodafone, we have over the last uh, number of years invested very heavily in that. There's absolutely no premium in the marketplace for that. Similarly, we're launching big on IoT. We worked with Consumer International, uh, as the international um, organization for consumers, to establish trust by design principles on security, privacy, environment, and stuff like that for IoT, because we want to nurture an ecosystem of IoT that Europeans can trust that actually makes sure that hacking into your home does not happen via your toaster, which unfortunately could very well become the case in the future. So, how do we? How do we make sure that all of us step up in the space where we pay attention to some of the vulnerabilities that will come from a ubiquitous system that penetrates every part of our life that requires massive investment? And I'm sorry, investment is not for free. Affordability cannot be the only objective of European policymakers in a digital space. Quality, trust, and making sure that people are safe comes with a price tag but in my view that's a price tag that Europe should be prepared to pay so these are the three areas where we would like to see step change where we think if Europe gets it right Europe will be able to catch up building on the fact that it has already a highly competitive manufacturing industry even if it's handicapped in the ICT space with the convergence of these two with these three concrete measures we hope that Europe will in the next phase of the digital revolution in this convergence and of the internet economy and the real economy, Europe will actually not be in the place where it is today, which is a laggard.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Um, So I take... I think from your intervention, uh, particularly this uh, lack of single market that we are still facing uh, here, both in terms of um, investment for infrastructure, you mentioned the example of 5G, but also other examples uh, here where the single market is still uh, incomplete, this innovation principle to be using uh, when uh, we are regulating uh, markets, but I think the most challenging is actually what you mentioned, this non-sectoral approach uh, for um, regulating and for policy making here. So, not focusing on sectors, but rather on goods and services um, and how they should be regulated, which really means mainstreaming uh, the whole digital agenda within policy area here and that's I think still a very big challenge for uh, eu policy making uh, here now um, we of course want to want to go back to the panel here, but since we already don't have so much time, I would now like to give the floor to the panel here for questions. I take it there is a mic ah yeah so and Please, if you could also identify before you your question and be short on the question. Uh, Thank you
4: very much. I am from Portugal. I'd like to make a question to Claire. Yeah. Uh, when you speak about uh, the digital changes for Europe, we speak about the involvement of uh, society and the economy. What do you think about uh, some projects like digital innovation apps and others that can reinforce this uh, capacity of the economy being more digital?
0: Yeah. I propose we collect a few questions uh, here that will be more efficient in terms of
4: time. Hello, I'm Glynis Whiting. Um, I'm one of the digital SMEs in the room. Um, I wanted to focus on two aspects, quite short. First was around trust, which I absolutely agree is core. Uh, In our SME, our view is trust is three elements. You mentioned, too, accountability and transparency, but also, for us, it's delivery that you do what you say. Um, and I wanted to ask, you talked about the network effect. How can the Europe help harness a digital effect in a very fragmented marketplace? Network effect which SMEs can benefit from. I'm a B2B matchmaking platform, so it's absolutely fundamental for me. The second is the fact that we've talked a lot about the consumer, the B2C marketplace, but the B2B is is e- equally critical for us. Yes. SMEs are the mainstream of Europe. Uh, 99% of our businesses are SMEs. They are not digitally transforming themselves. So again, to come back to your first point, Claire, how do you mainstream that digital access and ensure that SMEs, as well as consumers, are? Uh, better positioned to benefit from the digital society.
0: Yep. Still have questions. Tomorrow. Yep. Thank you. Carsten Hess with uh, Santander Bank. What, what struck me from this uh, debate, um, both from, from what uh, my colleague said, but also uh, the gentleman from Vodafone, is really that uh, we are still regulating sectors, but not services. And I wonder whether we have a chance, question for Claire, of course, to create a vision and and implement this vision in the next five years, that can we really regulate a service, a digital service, in the same way like uh, um, others are regulated. So if you provide a financial digital service, and it's similar to what a Facebook does, do we find a mechanism to regulate it or not regulate it? Uh, in, the, in the way that uh, there is a fair level playing field, I think this is a key issue for being competitive and, and catching up with uh, the non-European uh, dominant companies. Thank you. Yep. And then we have more.
2: Thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Yule, and I'm a researcher at KU Leuven. Uh I have a question with regard to data access and to the sharing of data. Because on one hand, of course, there is a need for companies to get access to data for developing new services. But at the same time, we know that there are some mixed data sets where personal data and non-personal data are together. And we need to find the balance between, on one hand, protecting the personal data, and on the other hand, granting access to data. So I wonder what is your opinion on this and how to make sure that data protection claims are not used as a strategic behavior sometimes in order to not to share the data with uh, competitors on the market. Just a a
1: very brief question. It's actually a clarification also following on on this one. Uh, Regarding data portability, the GDPR foresees an obligation for data portability. And I would like to know what what else could we do? What what exactly is is the uh, the demands? I'm not sure I understood. My name is Anna from the Inco Committee Parliament.
0: Okay, so uh, I think we now f- take a round of the panel members uh, here. So the various questions, I hope you t- took note. So l- for instance, let's start with uh, one from uh, Portugal was addressed to you here. Then there was one from SMEs. Maybe you can also collect that too. Sure. How to um, build trust
1: from uh, I'm data happy to try on those three questions. And maybe we can pause for a minute and see what people think about... The question, which I think Joachim very cleverly posed and you picked up on as well, which is how do we regulate when we've got yep. convergence mm. happening across all industries? Yeah, so that's a bigger question. Yeah, exactly. And how do you do the innovate services. first principle? And maybe we can yep. think about artificial intelligence. Because that is one of the big challenges that we have at the moment <clears throat> and we don't have a completely blank sheet of paper but we do have an opportunity now to think about how the best way of doing better but so that the, the gentleman from portugal who mentioned the digital innovation hubs yes i mean crucially important it's something that the commission has highlighted as a priority it's something that we're also putting money into i think what's really important and this you mentioned the digital divide between different areas not between the rural and the city the other thing that concerns me in European policymaking is the digital divide between different member states. Because we have this um, digitization of economy and society index, and what it shows us is that the ones who are already very good at innovation and have a lot of digital uh, penetration, so that would be, of course, the Nordic countries, are getting better and better. And then the ones at the other end, for example, some of the Eastern member states and Greece, are not getting better, they're stagnating. So I think another priority for us has to be, I mean, fortunately, I have to say that Portugal sits in a good position at the moment, I think, because you know, after the financial crisis, which was very, very difficult for Portugal, you really have you know, taken the difficult steps that were needed to get your economy back on the road. And what I hear very often from Portuguese politicians is that they understand the challenges of digital and they are up for it. Eh? So I think Portugal's in a good place but still needs to improve, but really one of the challenges of policy making is how we can get those who are playing catch up to do it quickly yeah. and then keep everybody together. Because you yeah. mentioned that at the beginning as well, it could be one of those problems that the digital divide will also cause our societies to disintegrate. And what we see at the moment is a very challenging political picture in terms of political parties and so on, and the haves and the have-nots, and I think we need to be very careful that we don't reinforce that through through what happens on digital. So you're absolutely right to point to the innovation hubs and they're a uh, priority for us. Member states need to up their game, but we need to make sure that all member states have an effective digital innovation hub. For those of you who don't know them very well, it's about basically bringing together smaller companies and academics and access to finance and trying to there sort of get the alchemy, which means that that, that can mix. Um, SMEs, yes, I mean, of course, and and you're absolutely right about delivery, of course. I mean, if you don't deliver, then you can forget about accountability and transparency. I mean, I would say the same for the Commission in some (laughs) respects, to be honest. But there you go. Uh, We have to be more like an SME, maybe in the way that we perform and and, and we work. I mean, you mentioned uh, business-to-business data, and Victoria, you mentioned that as well. It's an area, and and it came up a little bit in these questions on data on this side too, I think. I mean, that's an area that we're working on. It's one that we are focusing on now because data is so important for AI. What we've done so far is encourage businesses to share data. But again, this goes to the challenges, I think, that you were talking about, Joachim, in terms of rolling out 5G, which is how do you get different parts of business to work together? Because what we want, of course, is our businesses to compete to give the best for the consumer. But then on big projects, big infrastructure things, we have to get them to cooperate as well. And I think the real challenge for regulators and legislators now going forward is how can we maintain that balance of having enough competition in the marketplace but in the right places at the right moments, making sure that we can get companies to cooperate and collaborate, because otherwise we'll never get the scale that we need um,
0: in Europe. That's a challenge for regulatory but also for the competition policy. Authorities.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I w- sorry, when I say regulatory, uh, for me that encompasses, I, think, I think, competition and how um, legislation works with it, and and non-legislative measures as well. Um, I think you were were making that point, which is, and I think we will have this, as we say in English, or maybe from the north of England, in spades in the next five years, which is how do we get the competition law and the interface with the internal market to work better? We've seen it in the past five years on things that we have done on what we call geo-blocking, people being able to access websites and not be discriminated against in terms of Uh, being able to access products we've also had it on the whole piece about what we call the platforms to business or the online intermediaries so uh, you know that the gatekeepers point as well Um, and how do you say okay this is against competition rules and this is something where we need to regulate ex-ante because otherwise the market is going to crystallize and we won't have any competition in the market i think this is really the issue And we but an-
0: another important challenge is also not only to look at the current competition, but really also the future competition yeah, too, absolutely. and so that brings also the innovation dimension in the whole not only regulatory agenda, but also competition policy agenda, and to look at potential competition, not only the actual…
1: Yeah, and uh, I see our role in DigiConnect as being maybe to come forward with some proposals on what needs to be done next exactly. ante. Uh, but also, and above all, trying to help our colleagues that work in the competition area to understand what's happening in the digital space and be more far-sighted in that respect. Because, you know, the Facebook WhatsApp ex- example is very often cited, but there are plenty of others as mm-hmm. well where we haven't been able to really, not just see the actual effects of competition, but the likely effects of competition. And that's why I'm also talking about regulation needing to be a bit more up with the curve because you've got to be able to see around the bend to see what's coming. So I absolutely agree with
0: you on Mm -hmm. that. So So how easy is it within the Commission to have this uh, mainstreaming, and really no longer working in silos with the different TGs here, but really
1: cross-cutting, is there any (laughs) progress there? It's difficult in any organization. I mean, all of you know, if you run a big company, how difficult it can be sometimes. Uh, to get the different teams to talk to each other and that probably you know if you have a role on policy or if you have a role in the management one of your jobs is trying to get people out of their silos and and to talk but they also have to get on with their day jobs you know in terms of you put them in a team to get a, a job done and very often what you have as well is your managers motivating the team um, and part of what they do in motivating the team is put them in competition against other teams so It's difficult, yes, but I I think that our vocation as DigiConnect now over the next five years is of course to be amongst the best in terms of ideas about what needs to be done, but also facilitating the work of of other colleagues. Um, And sometimes it requires a strong management to do that. And we will now see, because this is a time of change, of course, in management of the Commission, it's terms of the way things operate. Do we need structural changes? Um, the problem with the structural change is that once you reorganise something, again, all of you who work in industry know this, No, you have a productivity loss until your new organisational structure comes on stream. So there, is, there are trade-offs to be made there no, in terms of moving people around but maybe what you do need is a very clear political mandate and that political mandate to go through uh, to the commission services. I think we have made a lot of progress over the last five years in working together. I mean, more More than ever in my 25 years of commission experience, in the last five years, I worked side by side. For example, did you connect and did you grow in terms of delivering things? And we had different views because we came from different angles and we had different understanding, but we thrashed out the differences, um, hopefully in enough time for us to have a common position when we went to discuss with the council and, and the member states. So it can be done, it's difficult. And you need the right impulses from the political leadership to be able to do it. So. Yep.
0: And of course, at the right speed. <laughs> yep. uh, so there were also these questions on uh, access to data and data protection. so
2: there were a couple of questions. One on access to data and wh- where do you draw yeah. the limit, right? Because there is personal data. Uh, today, if you take any of the large platforms, right, they have access to a lot of data. In fact, we don't even know how much data, but there is personal data interaction data, social data, etc. So I, th- I think here the idea is that, the same way that for payments you may have PSD2, right? It's for consumers, and again, it's not personal data, it's raw data, transactional data, to be able to dis- determine who can have access to that data, right? So that you have more portability. It's not all data, it has to be defined. That's why I think it's a bit of an ask for uh, policy makers, right? But there has to be something so that we make sure that there is security and how the data is being used and, the, and the, the values on like how it's manipulated or used for, for the benefit of the consumer, right? But today it's not symmetric. So th- that's what we uh, we're trying to solve for. So that, that's, that, that was your question. Th- I just want to, I know that was not my question, but on the SME question on network effects, uh, I think there are a couple of things. If we want SMEs to be able to benefit of what we call network effects, which pretty much means that uh, you can offer more services, have more access to to other users, right? <laughs> I think there are a couple of things. One is to look at the gateways, because at the end of the day, how SMEs distribute, sell their products is through, say, let's say, the search engines. <laughs> they are determining how they rank. So there has to be something that it's fair to the SMEs, so it's not just to to institutions, financial services, but to SMEs, corporates, so that they there is transparency on how things are advertised or sold. Otherwise, SMEs, the terms that they will be subject to, they will be squeezed out. So that's an important thing to look after. And then the second thing goes back to this whole one Europe or unification. If you are an SME, where SME grows is by doing cross-border within uh, you others, right? But they need to make sure that when you board them in a country, they can operate in the other one. And today, it's not the case. Even though the policy or the rules may be the same, the application of those have slightly, they have differences, right? So those pose more frictions for SMEs to operate.
0: Yeah, so if you talk about SMEs, I think we also have to distinguish the ones that are really servicing directly to final customers, but the ones who are engaged in in value chains and are delivering to other um, business, uh, are supplying uh, other uh, companies here, that's a different issue too. So there, the issue is more also how digitized is the whole value chain uh, here and how is that integrated within? Yeah. You wanted Uh, to reply? Yeah,
3: I take uh, a stab at a few of them. So first. so I don't think there are any networks effects for SMEs. If Vodafone with 110,000 employees and the uh, largest mobile operator on Earth in terms of its footprint cannot have network effects, I find it very hard to believe um, that that's very likely to pop up in an SME space. I mean, sc- I- Network effects is basically scale economies on steroids. So the fact that you need scale. Now the beauty of digitization is you can be a really, really small company in terms of number of employees, like Minecraft, and then become the world's, uh, one of the most successful gaming companies. So it's still six employees spread over the world, but uh, the turnover is certainly not uh, in a normal category of SMEs, so number of employees, yes. So I, th- I, think th- I think the question for me when it comes to the SMEs, and that's why we took a very strong stand in the platform to business regulation in the case of Vodafone, is that we didn't f- we didn't feel there were enough um, attempts at the European level, including in the original Commission proposal, to try to address the uh, symmetric bargaining power that d- that you can drive out of network effects by being the aggregated, by being the gatekeeper. So we felt that the competition law per se was not adequate. And to be very clear, we ourselves have platforms, so we took a hard look at ourselves and asked ourselves, would we? Be willing to engage in unfair commercial practices? And the simple answer was no, we don't think that should exist in a market economy. And for that reason, we had no problem that you regulate unfair commercial practices. So that's the added beyond transparency and accountability and uh, exposing how you uh, gather data on the back of those using your platform, whether or not you should also have some boundaries on how you can behave and how much additional market power you can derive out of uh, the asymmetric bargaining power that comes with you being a platform and we came to the conclusion that there was a need for substantive rules beyond the transparency rules and we were quite aligned with a lot of smes in that s- in that space so and we still think that's the case that's why we come to claire's point there there is a need to have a broader discussion in europe what's the balance between ex post and ex ante regulation where well, we do think that in a number of circumstances there is a need to actually be a bit more realistic not so naive understanding some of the effects and therefore being prepared to cross the line and have ex-ante regulation and that goes so, Can
0: I ask you so because you also you're operating in not only in the EU market but also in other markets So do you see there a difference in terms of the uh, how active SMEs are in aligning to these networks in Europe compared to uh, other parts of the world where you're active? So is there are there ha- higher barriers for SME firms to uh,
3: Select and operate in these networks. Anyway? No, um, I actually don't know 100. percent But if you ask the question, for example, uh, a platform like the mobile money platforms that we run in Africa, I didn't find that there was a, a, a sort of a, a s- slower pace of uptake in Africa. In actual fact, this was a proper leapfrogging, and people lashed onto it. Uh, now, I'd be perfectly honest, in that particular case, we did struggle with the question of whether we should make our system interoperable, what should be our responsibilities in relation to the rest of the financial sector in, uh, and other operators. So, you know, with that, like, with that uh, enormous power that you get by being the aggregator, uh, of course, you can short-term exploit it, but it comes with certain responsibilities, and I think we need to have a conversation around that. But I wanted to touch on the sharing of data, because I think that's one of the big, big, big topics. There is no interest, there's no, on the one hand, the fact that you can have a few that aggregate all data and hold it as proprietary uh, through a barter system with their users needs to be addressed. On the other hand, some of the ideas that are floating around that this is a public good and actually it should be accessible to everyone not only flies in the face of what we want in terms of data protection, but secondly, it disregards a big difference between machine-generated data and, and people-generated data. And third, we need to have an incentive structure for all companies to invest in data retention, in making sure to commercialize data. So th- this is a very difficult balancing act from a regulatory and policy perspective. The way that we look at it, and there's no holy grail to this, but the way that we look at it is that we do need in Europe to facilitate far more data sharing to overcome some of the uh, fragmentation that uh, do exist in sectors and between sectors. And between sectors potentially even larger problem, to be perfectly honest, including the artificial definition of sectors. And in that sense, a) you need to ensure interoperability of data so that data can talk to each other. B) you need to have commercial, you need to encourage the commercialization of data sharing. So, in other words, it needs to be make economic sense. Companies are in the business of making money, which means that they actually have an interest of sharing data. But third, you need to make sure that you don't take away innovations that come out of actually investing in data. So, give you a concrete example: um, we as Vodafone we have something called metadata, which means that we know how general populations move over time and in space. Why? Because you move between base stations, we can triangulate. Now that's a really powerful tool for municipalities to plan public transportation. So we're in discussions with public transportation authorities saying, okay, but actually don't put the subway or bus stop there, put it there, because actually from the point of view of how people move in the city. So it's nothing to do with the individual personal data, it's the aggregate people movement, boig which we talked to, works with the same thing with respect to the planning of tallies and, and, and the type of time slots when it should actually have the train going, going from Geneva up to Paris. So these are a number of applications that we see coming through the application of big data analytics.
0: So, and do we have currently the data regulatory framework that allows that kind of... No, uh, we, no,
3: we, no we have the, uh, the attempt of an e privacy regulation that basically said if you do this out of the United States with GPS data, it would be fine. But if you do it as a European uh, company basi- based on metadata, it would not be fine. And that's uh, exactly the type of points. A bit of,
1: of a caricature, Joachim, the
3: I said the same thing, and so did 12 other telcos in front of ANSIP yeah, and Gabriel. Yeah,
1: well, I know the telcoms have a specific view on this, but um, well, but we do need E-privacy rules at the end of the day, no? Oh, and absolutely. the text which is on the table now has evolved quite significantly. So, yep. no, but no. I think that's one of the missing pieces which needs to be completed now. So no, we need I to c- find comp- d- we're Vodafone
3: yeah. agrees yeah. with the commission that we need complete the privacy, yeah. but we need to complete it in a manner that allows such services to be developed in full respect of privacy, so it's not less than GDPR, but that we make sure that Europeans Companies can also do that on the basis of the technology that exists in Europe.
1: But I mean, one of the ideas behind the privacy proposal as well was to level the playing field, which I've heard mentioned a lot here by both you and Victoria. So I mean, the Commission has tried, in certain circumstances, to level the playing field. um, But I mean, the telcos need to play the game as well in terms of. um, And sorry, on, on platforms, the business you said what had been done wasn't enough. Maybe it's not enough, but at least it's the first step. And our calculation there, and it was the calculation that was shared by the Parliament and the Member States, was that it was better to have a first step than no step at all. <gasps> no, we know, agree. Now we have something on a basis on which we can work. If we hadn't done anything, then we wouldn't have got our foot in the door, and we wouldn't be moving forward on that. One. Yeah, we were happy
3: that the European Parliament improved yep. on the ambition that was proposed because it moved it even more in the step. Now, what? could I just say this final thing, data, final, yeah, final thing on
0: data? Final
3: thing on data is then you have the situation where, of course, you have gatekeepers of data. And that's where we think that we need to start thinking about what are the mandatory requirements for data sharing. So everything I said before that is voluntary. But there are gatekeepers in the data economy. And the question is then, should there be a mandatory requirement? And what does mandatory requirement look like? Is it FRAN type of requirements, fair and equitable access, non-discriminatory? So it's sort of a ladder of solutions. But I do think we need to have a proper discussion and come up with solutions in this space.
0: Okay, so I think we really developed a uh, well-filled out uh, work (laughs) program for all of us uh, here to do. Um, You started off by saying who's an optimist, who's a pessimist. I think we... I think we fed both sides uh, here, both those are pessimists as well as optimists, but I hope we fed more the optimists uh, here uh, with the discussion and uh, I'm sure also we will be continuing the discussion here, but now I think it's time for uh, for lunch. Let me thank my panel members for this great panel discussion here um, and looking forward to being able to keep on the discussion uh, later on. Thanks again for everybody.
3: The lunch is just outside in the room that is on uh, the same floor and uh, there is also a nice terrace that you can enjoy the view. Thank you.